Good morning. Good morning. How are you today? Yeah, we're excited to, uh, we are excited. This has been uh, uh, at least a year-long process, just finalizing all of the, uh, uh, you know, exactly identifying what the problems are with our building and then talking to uh, uh, multiple contractors and pursuing every angle. And we're glad that we are finally at the stage where we can uh, begin to move on the project. And so um, we do appreciate your patience during the next six to eight weeks as we, um, as we do that. And I think we will all be very, very uh, pleased with the finished product. Uh, take your Bible, please, and, and meet me in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6. We're in the middle uh, of a summer series in which we're looking into uh, what the Bible says about, about certain topics of interest. And today we come to the, to the topic of, of homosexuality. Uh, I understand this to be an emotionally charged issue. Uh, in our day, at least for many people... I'm aware of that, I'm very sensitive to that, and I want you to know up front that I I certainly will not uh, and do not intend to add any fuel to the cultural fire that in many ways is already raging out of control. Uh, Instead, I ask that we come to Scripture this morning, each one of us, each one of us, I I ask that we would come to Scripture this morning with a readiness of heart that truly desires to know the heart of God. Every person in this room, uh, everyone hearing this message is connected in some way to this issue. Maybe you've spent years in the church and you've developed very strong convictions on the matter. Uh, Maybe you have political opinions and your personal politics uh, come into play. Uh, Maybe you have friends or family members who identify with the LGBTQ community lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, or queer. Maybe you know of people who once identified in that way but are now part of of the Christian community. Maybe you're struggling with your own sexuality and trying like mad to make sense of the rhetoric coming at you from all sides. Or maybe... Maybe you're, you're here today and you just don't care. Or you'd rather avoid the issue altogether. Or you're ambivalent in some way. And had you known that we were covering this today, you, you would have stayed home. Uh, whatever the case, whatever your situation, here you are. And, and I truly believe it's not by accident. I believe God has something for us today to be found in this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In in, in this letter to the church in the city of Corinth, the Apostle Paul is addressing how followers of Christ should respond to one another and to the world at large. And in this section of the letter, he's dealing uh, specifically with the issue of sexual immorality. 
in chapter 5, he dealt with a specific instance of immorality in that particular congregation, while the second half of chapter 6 calls all Christians everywhere to flee from all types of sexual immorality because our lives are to be consecrated to Christ and our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. So so these two sections, one in chapter 5 and the other in chapter 6, they serve as bookends to our specific text this morning in which we learn that homosexual practice, like any sin, is a great offense to God. But God's grace is greater still. I want to read this with you, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Father, I want to thank you for the time we have this morning in these moments to to come before your word and to learn your heart I pray that you would reveal yourself to us through this text. That you would reveal ourselves to us. And that you would lead us in the path of righteousness. I pray that wherever we are on this when it concerns this issue, wherever we are, wherever our convictions fall, I pray that each one of us would come with humility and that we would uh, have a readiness of heart to learn from you once again. So would you teach us, Lord, so graciously and kindly, would you help us that we may grow Uh, both in our understanding of truth and in our ministry of the gospel. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. The question before us this morning is, what does the Bible say about homosexuality? And, And what does it say about homosexuality specifically in this passage And it says in this passage at least three things. First, 
it says that homosexual practice is sin that therefore separates a person from God and his kingdom. Second, homosexual practice is not more damning than other sins. Third, sinners of all types, including those guilty of homosexual sin, can and have found grace from God in Christ. I want to consider these three truths together this morning. The first thing we notice is the mention of the unrighteous, referring to to those persons whose lives are characterized by wrongdoing and a sense of godlessness. Rather than honor God with their lives as we should, the unrighteous dishonor Him with behavior that is rooted in sin rather than righteousness. Sin separates a person from God and according to verse 9, prohibits a person from receiving God's kingdom. Some of this sinful behavior is listed in the second half of verse 9 and on into verse 10, including the sin of homosexual practice. Now at this point, we probably need to make a very important distinction between same-sex attraction and same-sex behavior. I know of people who face same-sex temptation but the temptation itself is not sin. Just as I may be attracted to another woman and tempted toward lust or adultery, I'm not guilty of those things unless I entertain them and act upon them. Therefore, being attracted to members of the same gender is not the same as acting on that attraction. I say this because many people today are wrestling with their own sexuality and in the process of working through the many issues, they may occasionally find themselves attracted to someone of the same sex, but that attraction in and of itself is not sin. In fact, I've read testimonials of those who have come out of a gay or lesbian lifestyle. They're now saved. They love God. They're in Christ. They have the Holy Spirit, but they still deal with same-sex attraction. Just like all of us deal with temptation of many kinds. Those who won't inherit the kingdom, according to this verse, are specifically those who practice Homosexuality, you see that. That is, they engage in sexual acts with others of the same sex. We should also note that although this particular statement speaks specifically about men, Scripture also refers to women who are guilty of this same practice. In Romans chapter 1, for instance, Paul is again uh, describing specific acts of unrighteousness, and he says that women exchanged natural relations for those that are unnatural. So to be clear, God's intent for humanity is that sexual relations are to be shared between one man and one woman who are committed to each other in the covenant of marriage. 
That's the divine standard, and any sexual behavior that deviates from this falls short of God's perfect design. It is, it is wrong in God's estimation, and therefore separates the wrongdoer from him, and if not for his grace, those who are separated from God now will remain so for all eternity. That's what Paul is saying. He wants the Corinthians to have certain convictions about the future, about heaven, about who will and will not inherit the kingdom of God. The word inherit means to obtain legal possession of something that someone else has promised. In this case, God has promised a heavenly inheritance, not to the unrighteous, but to those who live in right alignment with him and his will. In our day, distinguishing between right and wrong is largely frowned upon. Thankfully, though, God cares about right and he cares about wrong because he wants us to live in the blessing of righteousness and to value it so highly that any amount of unrighteousness in our lives would bother us enough to desire his ways over our own. Because he is righteous in every way, the unrighteous exclude themselves from this inheritance, and more importantly, from relationship with him, they exclude themselves by their own chosen behavior, which includes homosexual behavior, and we have neither the authority nor the autonomy to redefine what God has made clear. So again, the first thing learned about homosexual practice from this passage is that it is wrong, it is contrary to God's perfect plan, it is sin that therefore separates a person from God and from the kingdom of heaven. Are you with me? However, the second thing we must understand which is as important as the first, is that homosexual behavior is not more damning than other sinful practice. Verses 9 and 10 list nine different types of people who likewise will not inherit the kingdom of God, including the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, those who practice homosexuality, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, and swindlers. This isn't an exhaustive list. Obviously, we could go on because all sin is contrary to God's perfect intent. All sin is disobedience. All sin mars the image of God in which we were made and brings death. This means, church, that we must stop ranking specific sins into arbitrary degrees of seriousness as if certain sins are more or less sinful than others. Though we may prioritize uh, one sin over another, of course, God doesn't. God doesn't grade on the curve in that way. As far as God is concerned, any behavior that exists outside of his intent for us is wrong and therefore sinful and therefore destructive to our relationship with him and to humanity itself. 
So it is not our place. It is not our place to tolerate some sins and rail against others. Not only is that presumptuous on our part, as if we can decide for God, it is hypocritical and it completely destroys our witness. A few years ago, I saw the movie Milk, in which Sean Penn plays Harvey Milk, the first openly gay elected official in the history of California. The movie is based on his life and assassination. It is set in San Francisco in the tumultuous 1970s, and it paints a very, very sad picture of the church. With Anita Bryant, many of you probably recognize that name, singer, beauty queen, celebrity spokesperson, and a leading voice of conservative Christianity at the time with Anita Bryant leading the charge against gay people. The film includes real footage taken from actual rallies and speeches in which she rails against the gay community, making fun of and openly shaming gay people all in the name of God. Watching that movie made me cringe, not because of the homosexual content per se, but because the Christian stance was filled with hate and ridicule and self-righteousness and outright ignorance. Just yesterday, Sally reminded me of a Christian concert that she and I once attended where the headlining artist between song sets jokingly but intentionally mocked gay people by mimicking certain stereotypical hand gestures and body uh, movements and voice inflections, all to the approving laughter of the church crowd. Now, I don't know this musician personally, just as I don't know Anita Bryant, and I'm sure that there, I'm sure that there is more to each of them than what was portrayed, but how sad... How sad that a celebrity can be propped up in the church as a model of biblical Christianity while we collectively shame and laugh at and judge those who are in true need of true Christian community. How can we claim to follow Jesus when we are so unlike him in this regard? I'm a little fired up about this. In the book, Unchristian, researchers David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons looked into what outsiders thought of people in the church. And their research revealed that 91% of people between the ages of 16 to 29 stated that their prime perception of the church was that it was anti-homosexual and attacked gay people incessantly. 
That should stagger us. How did we get to this point? How can we be okay with the fact that nine out of every ten unchurched people in that age range, their main thought of us is that we are anti-gay? Not that we are amazingly gracious or loving or caring or even that we are uh, people of principle, but rather that we hate homosexuals. Now, you may think that that is an unfair assessment of the church, and perhaps it is, but I think it runs deeper than that. And I think, I believe, honestly, there's some truth to it if we're brave enough to admit it. It seems to me that our judgmentalism has boomeranged back on us After all, Jesus clearly warned us to not judge from our seats of self-righteousness. He says, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Maybe our stigmatization of the LGBTQ community simply owes to ignorance on our part. We don't know any better. Or fear. Afraid of contamination. Or because historically the church has been too embarrassed and too ashamed to talk about sex at all. We've shied away from our sexuality almost entirely, rarely even addressing the subject to our own detriment. We leave our kids to figure it out on their own. Whatever the reason we're much more likely to welcome more respectable, quote, more respectable sinners into our assembly, whatever that means, than we are a person engaged in a gay or lesbian lifestyle. Much more likely to tolerate an alcoholic or a liar. Much more likely to empathize with the adulterer. Much more likely to to exercise patience and understanding with someone who's always seeking personal gain. And yet Paul says here, do not be deceived because a drunkard, a swindler, an adulterer, and a greedy person is just as lost as the practicing homosexual. The words do not be deceived remind us, I think, of our tendency to wrongly categorize certain sins as better or worse than others. But be not deceived because the greedy person is as desperately lost as the idolater, someone who attacks the reputation of another, the swindler or the reviler is as lost as the person who steals, those who entertain pornography and lust, both of which are examples of sexual immorality, they are just as guilty as those who practice homosexuality. In God's estimation, sin is sin. So the second truth presented in this text is that each of our many sins, including the sin of homosexual practice, disqualifies us from the kingdom of God. We must therefore treat all sin with the same degree of seriousness and thus view all sinners as having the same need of grace. Which brings me to my third point. Thankfully, amazingly, this passage also teaches that sinners of all types 
including those who those guilty of homosexual sin can and have found grace from God in Christ. In fact, when Paul writes to the congregation at Corinth, he makes it very clear that such were some of you. I don't know about you, I I love those words. I, I find tremendous hope in those words. Those five words, such were some of you, are so informative to this discussion because they level the playing field by reminding those of us in the church that apart from God's undeserved kindness, we would be numbered among the lost souls who have forfeited their inheritance in the gift of eternal life. But rather than leave us in our sinful state, God has come to us and He has cleansed us and He has sanctified us and He has justified us in the name of Jesus by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. The Bible declares in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for our sake, God made Him, Jesus, God made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. When Jesus took our sins upon himself and atoned for them on the cross, he died the death that was ours. When he rose from the dead, he broke the power of sin and death once for all so that anyone who commits him or herself to Christ receives his life and his righteousness as their own. only God can wash away sins which he does through Jesus, the enormity of which is stressed in the word, but. Now the ESV only lists this word once, but in the original Greek it appears before each of the three statements that follow. So then, You were covered, you, you were covered in sin's filth. You were, you were, you were drowning in its muck and its mire, but you were washed. You pursued, you, you did, you pursued all sorts of wrongdoing and you engaged in all kinds of unrighteous acts, but you were sanctified. You, you, you were guilty. You were justly condemned under God's perfect law, but you were justified. In other words, in Christ and by the Spirit of God, you have been cleansed, you have been made holy, you have been declared righteous as if you had never sinned at all. We must never doubt the power of God and His gospel, His power to forgive and completely transform a life because He has forgiven you and transformed yours. 
It's our witness. Given this, church, given this, how should we respond to the person who is guilty of homosexual practice? With hope, right? With love. With grace. Not that we compromise the biblical position, but rather that we embody it in its magnificent fullness. Because those who have been forgiven much should be at the front of the line leading the way in extending the gift of forgiveness to others. And I can think of no better example of how God responds with hope and grace toward those guilty of sexual sin than that of the woman who was caught in adultery, as told in John chapter 8. She was a mere pawn in a larger plan, a scheme. She was used to trap, she was used by the conspirators to trap Jesus, but she was guilty. Uh, she had, she engaged in consensual sex with a man who was not her husband. She was a willing participant. And she was brought before Jesus by her accusers. What would he do with her? Would he uphold the law, which condemned her to death? Or would he show contempt for the law by downplaying her sin, not that big a deal, and let her go free. They, they just, they, their, their whole plan was to put him in a no-win situation. If he upheld the law and condemned her, they could accuse him of being merciless and devoid of grace. But if he let her go, they would accuse him of, of breaking the law and being soft on righteousness, just full of compromise. Whatever path Jesus chose would discredit his ministry and his reputation, or so they thought. Knowing their hearts, however, and their insidious nature, Jesus surprised them by upholding the law and treating her with dignity and grace. How so? First, he forced them to acknowledge their own sin before condemning her of hers. Whoever is without sin should cast the first stone, he said. And one by one, they left. Guilty and convicted to the core. Woman, where are they? He then asked her, has no one condemned you? No one, 
Lord, she answered. And you can imagine, she, at this point, she is, just, uh, she is uh, just dumbfounded by this turn of events. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus' response here reveals the heart of God. He didn't condone her sin, not at all, but he took the spotlight off of her and her sin only and put it on everyone instead so that each person could assess their own selves before God. And then, after her accusers left, he spoke words of hope, words of mercy, neither do I condemn you. And then... He called her to repentance. Go and sin no more. And church, Jesus' response here should inform ours. I'm just struck by these three things. First, we must never judge another without first assessing our own hearts before God. Second, We must offer a message of hope and mercy, not one of condemnation. And third, we must call the guilty to repentance, to a better life, to turn from their sin and from going their own way, to go the way of God instead. What if we responded to those guilty of homosexual sin in this way? What if we refused to judge without first judging ourselves? What if we offered hope and mercy? What if we called for repentance? Not to shame them, but because we genuinely care about them and want what's best. Isn't that how Jesus responds to us? So why do we insist on doing it differently? Why do we send a message that says you must first toe the line, you must first clean up your act, and then, maybe then, God will accept you? Why do we send a message based on suitable Christian behavior when such behavior comes only after a person truly believes in Christ, not before? The burden is on us to bring the message of the gospel, a hope-filled message of God's love and mercy and grace, His desire to help and redeem, because as Romans chapter 2, verse 4, clearly asserts, it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. We are ambassadors for Christ in this world. And yet, sadly, historically, The church has refused to be Jesus in the LGBTQ community. There are exceptions, wonderful exceptions, but I'm just saying by and large. We have drawn lines of demarcation. We have built walls. We have cast stones. But if we are to take Jesus seriously and his command to go into all the world, we must drop our rocks and tear down these walls. We must obliterate them. Jesus went to and spent time with sinners. 
with those whom the religious community repeatedly refused, and they hated him for it, the religious community. The religious leaders of the day hated him for it. But he took the initiative. He cared enough to meet them on their turf. And so we just have to ask ourselves, don't we have a responsibility to follow in his steps? The burden is on us to build bridges, to engage in meaningful dialogue, to value the dignity of another human being. Even if their behavior is wrong, and makes you uncomfortable. Bridges of truth and love, bridges built upon Scripture, and where the love of Christ and our confidence in His finished work on the cross enlivens and inspires our compassion and empathy for the lost. So here's what I'm trying to say. And I'll close with this. Here's what I believe this passage of Scripture is saying as it pertains to this subject. Homosexual practice, like any sin, is a great offense to God, but God's grace is greater still. So I don't want to communicate anything. I don't want to communicate anything either directly or indirectly that would suggest that homosexual practice is okay because it's not. It is wrong in the eyes of God and there are grave consequences in play. However, I also do not want to communicate anything either directly or indirectly that somehow categorizes homosexual behavior as being more wrong than other sinful practice. All sin is sin in God's eyes and equally destructive to our relationship with Him and others. Therefore, what I do want to be sure to communicate, both directly and indirectly, is that all sinners, including those guilty of homosexual sin, can and have found grace from God in Christ. So, church, since God responds to us in truth and love, go and do likewise. Specifically with those in the LGBTQ community. Amen? Father, we want to thank you for our time. We understand that this is a sensitive topic in our day. We thank you that you speak directly to the issue. We thank you for just the amazing gift we have in Christ for the abundance of grace you have lavished upon us. So many of us seated in this room today 
we can read this list of people and we know we were there. We were numbered among that group. That's who we were. And by your grace, that's not who we are any longer. Because we've been washed and sanctified and justified. So thank you for coming to us, for taking the initiative, for being steadfast in your love. And please help us to do likewise. Uh, To the good of people everywhere and to the glory of your name, may Jesus Christ be praised. Amen.